My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. of COVID in Canada, it was immediately clear that the death rates and the horrible outbreaks and infections was taking place in a far worse fashion, killing more people in the for-profit long-term care facilities as compared to the not-for-profit and especially the publicly owned facilities, which immediately raised... That's the voice of Kevin Skerritt. He and Nancy Parker are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Kevin Skerritt is a research officer with the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE, whose work has largely focused on issues related to pensions. Nancy Parker is a retired civil servant who also worked in the area of pensions. They speak with me today not wearing those hats, but as members of both the Ottawa Health Coalition and the Ottawa Committee for Pension Security about a campaign called Make Rivera Public. One of the worst aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic in Canada has been the terrible toll that it took among people living in long-term care and retirement homes. Between March 1st, 2020 and February 15th, 2021, more than 2,500 care homes across Canada experienced an outbreak, which led to the deaths of more than 14,000 residents and around 30 staff. This accounts for more than two-thirds of Canada's COVID-19 deaths over that time. And some of the stories that have emerged about conditions and residents' experiences are truly horrific. All different kinds of long-term care homes had outbreaks and problems. But things were consistently worse in for-profit homes. Public facilities run by municipalities had 1.4 deaths per 100 beds. Non-profit facilities had 2.8, while for-profit homes had 5.2. According to Skerritt, this outcome was not at all surprising. By allowing profit to be extracted from care homes, quote, what you're doing is incentivizing them to minimize their costs and maximize their profit, end quote. The biggest cost is the labor of the people providing the care, who are mostly women and disproportionately racialized. So minimizing the cost means wages are lower, working conditions are worse, and staffing levels are lower, all of which is worse for workers and worse for the people they care for. There are a number of major chains of for-profit care homes in Canada. In the wake of the atrocious impacts of COVID, there is growing sentiment, up to 75% of Canadians in recent opinion surveys, that the entire sector should be made part of the public health care system. However, this episode and the campaign that we'll be talking about are focused on one specific major for-profit long-term care corporation, Rivera. Unlike the others, Rivera is 100% owned by a major public sector pension fund, the one for people who work for the federal public service. The call to transfer Rivera into full public ownership initially came last year from the Public Service Alliance of Canada, the largest union representing workers in the federal public service. Workers and unions have essentially no control over management of their pension plans, but the federal government could make it happen. 
That initial call, however, wasn't attached to a campaign, and it might have faded away if the idea hadn't been taken up by activists involved in two local grassroots groups in the Ottawa area. The Ottawa Health Coalition, which works to defend and improve the public health care system, and the Ottawa Committee for Pension Security, which deals with pension-related issues. The groups hosted a large online public forum in September 2020. At the same time, they launched an open letter endorsing the demand that Rivera be shifted to public ownership, which has subsequently been signed by thousands of people. Among Ottawa's many current and retired public service workers, many people were shocked to discover that they were potentially benefiting from being indirect owners of a corporation that continued to profit as people in its care suffered and died in ways that redirection of that money to improving care could likely have mitigated. Since then, momentum has continued to grow including among healthcare advocacy organizations and retiree groups, but most notably among public sector unions. According to Skerritt, unions representing more than 98% of unionized workers employed by the federal government have called for Rivera to be taken into public ownership, which is unprecedented, and some have launched their own campaigns on the issue. The federal NDP has expressed its support, and the Ottawa groups hosted another public forum in June, which was very successful. With a federal election expected this fall, a key focus for the group in the coming months will be making the demand to make Rivera public into a campaign issue. I speak with Skerritt and Parker about long-term care, pensions, COVID-19, and the Make Rivera Public campaign. My name is Kevin Skerritt. I work as a research officer for CUPE, Canadian Union of Public Employees. My work there is focused on pensions. But in my work around the Rivera Project, this is something I do outside of my official work for the most part, and I do it with a couple of Ottawa-based organizations, Ottawa Health Coalition and something called Ottawa Committee for Pension Security. My name is Nancy Parker. I am retired. I spent most of my career working in the area of pensions at different levels. I'm involved in the Ontario Health Coalition and also the Ottawa Committee for Pension Security. And I guess Make Rivera Public, like the campaign, the short version is, I think for both Nancy and I, we took this up through, in the first place, Ottawa Health Coalition last summer, and it emerged out of a call that was issued by the Public Service Alliance of Canada, PSAC, where they called for Rivera as a long-term care for-profit company to be transferred into public ownership. But there wasn't really a campaign, there wasn't organized activity to get involved in, and so Nancy and I and some colleagues got involved in pulling together, in the first instance, a large virtual online Zoom town hall meeting called Make Rivera Public. And I think that process, that event in September of 2020, was really what got the active campaign launched. And since that time, different organizations have taken it up in different ways, and Nancy and I have continued to organize around this call ever since. I got politically active as an undergraduate as far back as the late 1980s. I then eventually ended up graduating and getting my research work at CUPE as far back as 1994, and I've been working there ever since. In some ways, my work as a researcher has a political dimension, and it sometimes connects me to collective bargaining and worker organizing at a very grassroots level. But of course, sometimes trade union organizing is also not very grassroots. But I've kept my political involvement in different things outside of my work life as well. 
I've been involved in various labor and economic justice struggles and some more explicitly political organizing related. I've always been very seriously committed to public health care and the struggle for access to basic rights like health care and education. The reason that the Rivera thing became important to me is because both inside and outside of my work life, I've been very interested to trace the role of large pension funds in Canada and around the world as investors and as owners. And I knew for some time that Rivera, this now controversial long-term care company, was exclusively 100% owned by one of the large Canadian pension funds, the Federal Public Service Pension Fund. And that was always something that troubled and bothered me, but there was never really much of an opportunity to do anything about that politically, because that was just you know one of many troubling things that pension funds do. But when the pandemic happened and it became visible that Rivera as a for-profit long-term care company was actually responsible, I would argue, for really tragically terrible conditions, understaffing, and ultimately the deaths of hundreds of senior residents in Rivera homes, that opened up, I think, an opportunity to take this up politically and do some organizing. I got involved in the Ontario Health Coalition as a direct result of personal experience. My husband suffered a heart attack and then developed complications. And so that gave me a firsthand view of how our healthcare system is really underfunded. If you don't come to need the healthcare system, you may not really see the devastating effects of the cuts and the underfunding. People need to be made more aware of the state of our public health care system. And as far as pensions go, I became interested in pensions early in my career. And again, it was from a personal experience where one of my aunts who had stayed at home and raised her four children and been uh, supporting her husband in the family business. And then they separated and she was left with nothing. And it made me realize some of the consequences for women and their access to retirement security and also the lack of access to pension coverage for young workers. These are two areas that are important. We have basic rights to have the security of public health care and a secure retirement income, but we're losing ground in these two areas. So why does a public sector pension fund in Canada own in its entirety Rivera, a for-profit long-term care corporation? And what are the implications of that? Canada, in some ways, is a leader globally in having like a small number of very, very large pension funds, essentially funds that are assets that are securing pension promises to mostly public sector workers. I would also include the large Canada Pension Plan Investment Fund, which is the largest of the group. Those funds have existed for many years, but they've been transformed over the last 30 years, and especially the last 20, 25 years, in terms of how they invest. For many years before the 1990s, pension funds were invested very conservatively, and they were actually guided by very conservative mandates. There was also restrictions on foreign investment. Most pension fund assets before the 2000s, they had to be invested in Canada. 
a lot of those rules were deregulated, and this freed up the pension funds to start doing more or less whatever they wanted. And what the large funds have been doing is getting more and more into the kinds of investments that investment banks and asset managers on Wall Street and in the financial districts prefer to get involved in. And that has been increasingly in public infrastructure of various sorts, private equity, direct ownership stakes in companies, in some cases, buying up and owning and operating companies outright. And so another fund was established by the federal government to get more exposure to these assets. And that fund is called PSP Investments. It's the Public Sector Pension Investment Board, which was established by Paul Martin in the late 1990s to invest the assets of federal government employees to secure their pension plan. That's the entity that some years later in 2006-2007 decided to purchase an existing chain of long-term care facilities and retirement homes and reorganize it and rename it Rivera. And they've been running it and expanding it ever since 2006 to be the second largest long-term care for-profit company in Canada. And it is actually a multinational. It has holdings in the U.S. and the U.K. It's been caught dodging taxes in the U.K. And it's profiting from this component of Canada's health system that is not covered by the Canada Health Act. It is excluded. It is not a public system. It's a mixed system, which has been increasingly privatized. And so we have this strange contradiction of this important pension plan with important commitments to retirees and workers, but which is securing its pension promises through what we consider to be a really disturbing kind of investment. What context did the Make Rivera Public campaign emerge from? When I began to see and hear the horrific stories of the rates of infection and the high rates of death in the Rivera homes, that really brought the two issues of health care and retirement security together for me. Our pension system and our legal system around pension plans makes it complicated and kind of supports growing investments that I find can be quite destructive to our quality of life and our standard of life. We're required when we sit on the boards to ensure that we have sufficient return on investment to provide the pension promise, which, you know, that is understandable. But I don't believe that if the average pension plan member understood that we're making profits as a result of cuts that they're making to the quality of care and, you know, not staffing homes sufficiently to the point where during COVID, patients were dying of malnutrition and they were dying from dehydration. Like, that is just not right. So that's really what prompted me to try and raise awareness on the connection between the drive for profits and how that is impacting our society. From the very first wave of COVID in Canada, it was immediately clear that the death rates and the horrible outbreaks and infections was taking place in a far worse fashion 
killing more people in the for-profit long-term care facilities as compared to the not-for-profit and especially the publicly owned facilities, which immediately raised important questions about, well, why is that? And the answer, of course, if you ask any of the academic experts, the analysts, the people that have examined these systems, they say, well, it's very obvious. If you hand control of a healthcare facility like these, over to for-profit managers who are, who are operating it in order to extract a profit. What you're doing is incentivizing them to minimize their costs and maximize their profit. Their costs are primarily labor costs around the labor that is used to provide care for seniors that need care. So if your goal is to minimize those costs, what you're doing is you're minimizing the wages that are paid to the mostly women, significantly racialized workforce that works in these facilities. So you're creating really bad working conditions, bad compensation for this vital care work, which in turn leads to understaffing and worse care conditions. I don't want to be too complete. There were problems in the others as well. But the worst problems were in those facilities that were managed on a for-profit basis with minimal staffing, underpaid, exploited workers. And in many cases, the pay and the working conditions were so poor that they were already understaffed heading into the pandemic. Then when the pandemic happened and some people are getting infected, some workers are not showing up to work they had every interest in just continuing to operate in an understaffed fashion, in part because they were actually saving on their costs. When we actually saw reporting that showed that in those companies that have to report their financials, they actually were still channeling dividends and payments out to shareholders. Last summer, in the midst of this crisis, when the money was desperately needed to improve their staffing, which then, of course, led to even more problems, outbreaks, deaths, terrible circumstances in the second wave and the subsequent third wave and so forth. So this really signals to Canadians that may not have known about this sector before that we've got a major problem in how governments have structured this particular part of the healthcare system. And in some ways, the good news is that this has led to a very strong and loud push to get for-profit management, get these companies out of the system and to transfer the whole thing into some form of public management. Our work focused on Rivera is a part of that broader effort to socialize long-term care and to get profit-making out of the system. What actions and activities have happened under the Make Rivera Public banner since you got rolling late last year? So if we want to take this on and challenge the existence of Rivera as a for-profit long-term care provider, if we want to challenge the power brokers to make a change, who are we challenging? Are we challenging Rivera? Are we challenging their parent company, PSP? Or are we challenging its ultimate owner in the federal government? What the Public Service Alliance did, which we then expanded on, was kind of an approach to all three levels, but particular strategic targeting of the federal cabinet and PSP Investment Board itself. In the initial phase in the fall of 2020, as Ottawa Health Coalition connected to that town hall meeting, we posted an open letter that individuals could sign, and it was put on the Canadian Health Coalition website. It was endorsing the call initially issued by PSAC for the government to transfer ownership of Rivera into public hands. Thousands of people have signed that letter, 
And in fact, a couple of similar online letter campaigns have been launched subsequent to that by Public Service Alliance and also PIPS, another federal public service union. I don't know exactly the total, but I think the number is now tens of thousands of people have signed these letters calling on the government to act. Another form of strategic action that we got involved in and others was to extend the call itself. What we initially had was the PSAC and our Ottawa Health Coalition and the Ontario Health Coalition, so healthcare campaigners in this one union. Well, in the fall, through the following six months, we gained support from the next two largest federal public service unions. As of March, that work then extended even further to a point where a letter articulating the same basic call on the government was co-signed by 15 of the 18 unions representing federal government employees, representing, I think, over 98% of federal government employees that are unionized. Nothing like this has ever happened in Canadian history, at least with respect to this particular set of unions in this pension plan, where the unions, the workers, the members of the pension plan itself are saying, we don't want to own this. We're embarrassed by this ownership relationship. We don't want to be profiting from this kind of exploitative management of health care that should be in the public sector. So there's been a certain momentum gaining support for this call. And Nancy and I and our colleagues in the local organizations have tried to build more momentum behind that and get more support for the call. In November, I think it was, the federal NDP, New Democratic Party, the federal leader articulated the call to make Rivera public. So this has gained some traction in federal politics as well. So we're encouraging people, especially those that are part of organizations, to find ways to not just sign online letters, but actually get organized and get their respective organizations, whether it be a trade union, a retiree organization, other kinds of you know social movement organizations and healthcare defense organizations to join this call. This is not one singular campaign or campaign organization. There's a number of organizations that are doing this work. But I think it is larger and more broadly supported than ever. We're hoping to make this campaign a factor in the coming federal election. Really, up until now, the federal liberal government has managed to dodge and avoid its responsibility for this part of the problem by dismissing the Rivera concern as, well, well, this is not really under our direct control. They've deflected criticism. But we're hoping to change that and to make this a real force in the coming federal election and see where things stand after that. The only thing that I would add to that is that the Ottawa Committee for Pension Security is working closely with the Ontario and the Ottawa Health Coalitions, pushing back on, in the province of Ontario, a number of these long-term care home facilities have to apply for renewal of licenses, which can last up to 30 years to operate these homes. And we've been actively engaged in participating in the consultation process of the renewal of the licenses in the individual homes, pushing for an expansion of the not-for-profit and the municipal model over the for-profit homes. What does the campaign have planned coming up? And what would you ask listeners to do in support? I always try to reach out to people who may not be 
actively engage and try to raise awareness around these issues. And I think that it's important for pension plan members to take an interest in what's happening in their own plans. Ask the questions about, you know, how is our plan invested? And even being a bit more specific in asking, do we have healthcare investments that are privatized? And dig a little deeper and put a little bit more pressure on your plan administrators to be a bit more transparent in what's happening in your own plans. Yeah, I think that's really important. That's, I think, kind of an ongoing project that the Rivera situation makes even more urgent. As Nancy says, we would like to almost leverage this into a greater awareness that these pension funds have become a social problem that we need to find ways to challenge and to fix or at least to address as best we can. And I would add to that on the specifics of our next steps, where things stand today and looking forward for campaign activity. I mentioned briefly that we're looking ahead to a possible federal election. We are having serious discussion about how to take advantage of that as an opportunity to get this issue onto the radar and uh, you know into the mix of policy issues that should be subject to debate and discussion. In June, we did a town hall that we called Make Rivera Public, Building Our Momentum. The town hall in June was more focused on these strategies and on our next steps. And I'll just mention one or two specific things that we talked about wanting to try to get accomplished in the coming months. And one of them is just creating opportunities for people in different cities to take this up and take some steps that would make this campaign around Rivera more visible and bring some pressure to bear, specifically on federal MPs. I mean, Rivera, as a subsidiary of PSPIB, PSPAB is a crown corporation. It's the federal government. But MPs, including government liberal MPs, have faced very little in the way of pressure or accountability around this. We announced our plans to encourage organizers and supporters of this call to literally go out to their federal MPs, their federal MPs' offices, and make contact with their MPs, challenge them, ask them their view about this, about the call to make Rivera public, even leverage, you know, the social media techniques that are more and more used. Take photos, take selfies with Make Rivera Public banners at your MPs' offices, making it clear that the demand has been delivered, especially to government MPs, but frankly to all MPs, to take a position on this issue to force some accountability. Now, of course, we don't want to put all our eggs in that basket and just go sort of pleading to these politicians. We also want to find ways to build our own strength and power around this. And this gets back to what Nancy was talking about. We want to encourage groups to get organized themselves within their union, within their retiree organization, within whatever other action or political organizations they may be attached to, and find ways to take up this call and to promote some education, some information about this situation, and have it more widely known. So I think there are a number of strategies and tactics that we're aiming to marshal in the coming months. You have been listening to my interview with Kevin Scarrett and Nancy Parker about the Make Rivera Public campaign. To learn more, email them at makeriverapublic at gmail.com.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.